Good morning, everybody. As Sean said, my name's Lauren, and I'm going to read Acts 5, 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, I realized a few minutes ago that this is going to have to be the first time I preach with my glasses on. Because my choice is either I see my notes and don't see you, or I see you and can't see my notes. So (laughs) I'm going to go with the notes so we don't get lost. Um, So what do you do if you are the pastor and you've been preaching through the first few book of Acts, and you get to the passage in chapter 5 where God strikes down two people dead in church? you give someone else an opportunity to preach. (laughs) So here I am. Yeah, you are. Where's Royden? He's away for the weekend. He did say to me, I hope it goes well. So so what do we do with Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 11? We pray. Let's do that. Father, please prepare our hearts and minds to hear what this is saying. Um, what you are saying to us. Um, Help us to know you as you truly are. Help us to love you more because of this passage and to turn to you in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The truth is, though, we actually need to thank Royden um, because I think over the last few weeks he's actually given us some very important truths and information that helps us to understand this passage. And what it's saying. So over the last two Sundays in particular, Royden has been uh, explaining to us the the incredible unity that that God has created uh, in his church. Uh, And that unity, in fact, in the church is a very important theme that runs throughout the book of Acts. Two weeks ago, Royden explained how this unity is not a man-made thing, but it's created by God. God did this. Uh, The first church community that is described in chapters 2, verse 42 to 47, and then uh, two weeks ago we also looked at the end of chapter 4, that community has come about because 
After Pentecost, after the arrival of the Spirit, Peter stands up, and for the first time in history, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection is proclaimed. And those who hear the message are cut to the heart, and they repent, and they turn and put their trust in Jesus, and literally, almost instantly, they are gathered together by God in this most amazing new community of people. And this unity of the, of the church within the church is also described as the work of the Spirit, who has just arrived at Pentecost. Peter is empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel. It's the Spirit that empowers people to, to hear the gospel and to turn to Christ in faith. It's the Spirit that applies the powerful work of Jesus on the cross as God brings them into his new, into his church. So God has created unity in the church through the death and resurrection of Christ and through the power of the Spirit. And uh, we've, we've been given a wonderful picture in Acts of what this unity looks like, and, and Roden has taken us through so much of this. They meet together regularly, and they meet to learn. They want to know more about Jesus. They come and listen to the apostles. They, they love being together. They eat together, pray together, they give thanks together. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Luke says they were of one heart and soul. That speaks of a group of people who, who have the same beliefs, the same convictions, the same passions, but also there's a warmth and a friendship there amongst them. Verse 32 also implies that this group is already quite a large group of people. We know from chapter 2 that there's at least a few thousand people uh, in, this, in this first church. So I want you to think about what has happened in these opening chapters of Acts. Uh, all of this has been happening in Jerusalem around the time of Pentecost. And the people that we read about, the people who form part of this first church, are Jewish people. But they are people who don't live in Jerusalem. They live scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Remember at this time, God's people are dispersed. And, and actually, friends, they aren't growing up in, in Jewish culture, they're actually growing up with the Gentile culture. They live in different parts of the Roman Empire. Their home language isn't even uh, Hebrew anymore. It's, it's a number of other languages that are listed for you in Acts chapter 2. And so what you have in Jerusalem is this very diverse group of people. They're Jews. They've come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate Pentecost, but their heritage is very different. Their culture is very different. They come from different cities, different ages, they, they speak different languages. They have different backgrounds. They're strangers to each other. And yet in a matter of weeks, almost overnight, these strangers have been brought together in this most remarkable new community of people with an amazing sense of unity in purpose and beliefs and also with an amazing love for one another. And you see this love expressed in a very generous way, in both chapter two and chapter four, Paul makes a, uh, Luke makes a point of telling us how some of some from among them, those who are able to take some of their land and they sell it, and they bring it to the church to be used for those in need. And and Luke makes it very clear that these actions of generosity come from hearts that are actually being changed by God. So just flip back to chapter 4, and I promise you we will get to chapter 5. Okay, but just have a look at Acts chapter 4. 
So again, verse 32, Luke says that because of their, their unity in heart and soul, they no longer see their possessions as their own, but rather they see it as belonging to others. He says the same thing, in, a similar thing in verse 34. Their changed attitude to material belongings means that those who could sold some of it and gave to those in need. But look at verse 33. What is bringing about this incredible change in people's attitude? Well, the apostles bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ. They're learning about Jesus. And because they're learning about Jesus, Luke says God's grace was upon them. In other words, God is at work amongst them and in them. So these people, friends, are having their hearts and minds transformed to such an extent that they are making pretty radicalist decisions about their own material wealth. And they, they, they're using it in a way that expresses the powerful unity that God is creating amongst them in Christ Jesus. So this new community has been birthed for the very first time in history by the Spirit of the God through the Gospel. It's an act of God himself. As Royden has been saying over and over again, Acts really is about the acts of God. And one of the most important acts is the birth of the church. Now, Royden has spoken to us about this over the last few weeks, but I want you to have that in your mind when we do eventually get to chapter 5. Okay? Because there's one more thing I want to remind you of what Royden said last week. And last week he explained so, so wonderfully how the Bible tells the big story of God. And it's one of the most helpful ways you can read the Bible. Read it as God's story for our world and where God is taking our world. And, and that through Christ, who stands at the center of God's story, through Christ, God has brought us into his story as we come to Christ in faith. And that's what's happening to these people in Acts. God is busy bringing them into his story. But I want you to see, friends, how important this community of people is to God and to God's big story. Now, you don't have to necessarily turn there. You can if you want to go, go quickly. But I want us just quickly to have a look at Ephesians chapter 3. I promise Acts 5 is coming. But Ephesians chapter 3. And in that passage, Paul is busy talking about his ministry to the Gentiles as he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And you read about that later on in Acts. And you see, the point that Paul is making is that part of God's big story is that it's, it's not just for Jewish people, but it's for all people, as God brings all people into his story through Christ. And so this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 7. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plan, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and, and access with confidence through our faith in him. He's talking there about God's big story and the centrality of Jesus in that story. But the most surprising word, I think, in those verses is the word church in verse 10. Paul says that the God who created all things 
is busy making known, putting on display, demonstrating, giving evidence of his manifold wisdom. How? Through the church. Now, friends, just stop for a minute. I know Royden has asked you to do this in the past, and no one likes doing it, but just look around you. Just take a look at this gathering here this morning. This is God showing the universe his manifold wisdom. Could it be? This is God showing Satan himself that his attempt to make God look like a fool has failed. You see, God created the world to reflect his glory. And Satan's basically trying to say to him, you're a fool. And friends, the existence of this church here this morning, of every church across the globe in every age, is God's way of saying to Satan, you are wrong. This is my wisdom. You have lost. Friends, this is the beginning of God's new humanity. He's redeemed, recreated humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus. A humanity that reflects, not perfectly, but a humanity that reflects his glory, and especially in the way that we love each other. You see, friends, that's how God sees this gathering here this morning and every other gathering in Midrand and around the world as churches get together. That's how important this church is to God. We are his most, not just us, but the other churches here in Midrand, we are his most powerful evidence in Midrand that Jesus has defeated Satan and sin and that God's plans and purposes will not be ended or stopped. That's how we as a church fit into God's story. That's how important we are to God. And we can trace our place in God's story, friends, all the way back to this first church in the book of Acts. Now, chapter 5. Bring all of that with you, if you can, with you to chapter 5. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It takes place in Jerusalem in those first few weeks. And the church is only a first few weeks, is only a few weeks old. It's the only church in the whole world, this church. God has literally only just given birth to this new community. And even, yes, it may be a few thousand people in Jerusalem, but it is very new, it is very small, it is very vulnerable. So that's the first thing to notice. Notice also that at, at the start of the story, verse 1, Luke says, he starts the story with the word but. In other words, he's comparing what Ananias and Sapphira do to someone else, and that someone else is Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. So in those days, how you invested for the future, even how you generated an income in the present, was very often you invested in land, you bought land. And so at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas is a typical example of the many Christians who are in this new community who have had their attitude to material possessions changed by God's grace to them. And they've taken some of their savings and probably even some of their ability to produce income in the present. They've taken some of that and they've willingly brought it to the church to give to those in need. And Barnabas is an example of that. 
And now you get to chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira seem to be doing the same thing. It seems as if the gospel has also changed them. And they also sell some land. But verse 2 tells us that all is not as it seems. You see, this couple has secretly agreed that they're going to keep some of the money from the sale of the land for themselves, and they're only going to give part of it to the church. Now, friends, even that in itself is not a problem. But you see, the phrase that is translated in verse 2 as kept back in your Bibles, it comes from a word that means to steal or misappropriate. There's nothing new under the sun. This couple have agreed together secretly they're going to lie. They're going to lie about how much they actually got for the land and they're going to keep some of the money for themselves and give the rest to the church. And so Ananias brings that part of the money that they agreed they're going to give and they bring it and they lay it at Peter's feet to give to the church. It was, a, it was meant to represent, friends, as it did with Barnabas and all the others, a powerful act of love for God and love for God's people. But as God's apostle, as he stands there, God enables Peter to see what is going on in Ananias' heart. And so Peter confronts him. And friends, notice what the issue is. He says to Ananias, was this not your land? You were free to keep it or not, or sell it. And even after you've sold it, you were free to do with the money as you chose. In other words, he's saying to Ananias, no one commanded you. No one told you to do this. No one forced you to do this. No one even told you how much of the money to give. These acts of spontaneous, willing generosity in the church were a fruit of God's grace in people's lives. That's what they were supposed to be. People like Barnabas gave generously because they wanted to give generously. Now that's not what this couple is doing. They are pretending. They're pretending to be like Barnabas and all the others who had given. But their actions are cloaked in all kinds of deception and lies. And these are serious lies because Peter says to Ananias, you've lied to God. He says in verse 3, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And if we are in any doubt, friends, as to the seriousness of what this couple has done, that, that doubt is removed immediately in what, in what follows. Verse 5, Ananias literally falls dead on the spot. He is struck down dead, and the young guys come in and carry him out and go and bury him. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, walks into the same place. She doesn't know what's happened. And Peter confronts her, and he even offers her an opportunity to come clean. But she also lies. She lies about the money, how much they sold the land for, and what they're giving to the church. And Peter says to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? He's saying to her, did you really believe 
that you could try and deceive God and get away with it. That's what he's saying. And Sapphira immediately meets the same fate as her husband, and she too is struck dead on the spot and is carried away and buried. Friends, it's not surprising in this passage, twice Luke says, and people were filled with terror. This is a terrifying story. We, we must be in no doubt. It is God who struck this couple down dead. God did this. It is God's judgment on them. And when Peter speaks in this passage, he actually sounds very much like one of God's Old Testament prophets who would come to God's people and warn them and then speak God's judgment and then it would happen. God says what he does what he says. So why does this happen? And why does Luke include this in his story, in, in the story of Acts? Well, friends, just understand why it is that Ananias and Sapphira lied. Why did they lie about the amount of money that they're bringing to the church? And why is this such a serious thing in God's eyes? You see, on the surface, you could say it's just greed. I mean, the assumption here is that Ananias and Sapphira are not the kind of people that are really struggling. They've got land that they can sell. And so, you know, it's probably just greed. We don't want to give it all. We're going to keep some for ourselves. But it goes deeper than that. The problem is they want to look just like Barnabas. That's why Luke compares the two so closely. They want to look like Barnabas. They want other people in the church. They want the apostles and friends mainly, probably most seriously of all, they want God to think that they are just like Barnabas. Their motives are mixed and deceptive. They are hypocritical. They are not what they seem to be. And why is this described as a lie against the Spirit of God? Because their actions are actually a denial of what the Spirit of God is busy doing amongst them. Their actions deny the reality of this new community of unity, this new community that is being transformed by the gospel and loving each other in, in new ways. Their actions are a denial of that. They are, if you like, friends, if you think in terms of Ephesians 3, it's, a, it's an attack on the wisdom of God. It's saying to God, you're a fool. Notice the dark origins of this lie. Verse 3. He says to Ananias, Peter says to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart to lie to God the Spirit. It's not just a lie, it's an attack. Satan is attacking God's church. He's attacking God's wisdom. He's attacking the birth of God's new humanity in its very first few moments of, of life. He's using the greed, probably in Ananias and Sapphira's heart, to attack what God the Spirit is busy creating through the gospel. He understands, friends, Satan understands that nothing destroys unity quite like pride and deception. Ananias have, and Sapphira have lied so that they can appear to be part of this, this wonderful new church, this new humanity that God is creating. 
They say, we want to we look like we're part of this, but we still want to satisfy our own greed. It's the, it's the first potentially fatal opening of a little crack in the unity that God has created through Christ. And Satan understands only too well that if he can just slowly but surely widen that crack, slowly but surely, he will stop God's mission in its tracks. You see, the church is not just the first sign of God's new creation. It is not just the display of his wisdom. It's also the vehicle through which God intends to spread his kingdom across the world. The rest of the story of Acts and friends continuing all the way up until today tells the story of how God creates churches through the gospel and then those churches God uses to take the gospel out into the world so that more churches are created and so that they take, that's how God is doing it. And so these church communities is an essential part of God's mission to the world. And so by using the greed and pride in Ananias and Sapphira's heart, he is launching a very strategic and potentially fatal attack, not just on God's church, not just on God's wisdom, but ultimately on God's whole mission to the world. He's trying to rewrite God's story. He's trying to derail it. He tried to do it in the wilderness, remember, where he tempts Jesus to not go the way of the cross. He tries to do the same thing in the garden, and of course he fails. So now he's trying to do it again as he attacks the first fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's literally trying to nip God's church in the bud so that it never flourishes and grows. Now God's response should terrify us. I mean, this, imagine being there. But when we understand the significance of what's happening, it shouldn't surprise us. God stops Satan's attack immediately. In no uncertain terms. And he does that so that the rest of the story of Acts and friends, the rest of the story of church history up until now and all the way into the future can continue. So that his story can continue. His plans and purposes are not derailed. So it's terrifying, but it's not surprising. God is fending off Satan's attack. Now, what does that mean for us as we sit here this morning? What do we do with this? Now, let me mention a few things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that church leaders can use fear to collect money. There are many who do. We'll use this passage... To, to, to make people fearful and, and cause them to give money to the church. This passage, friend, is actually not about giving money. It's about the unity of the church. That's what it's about. Money is just the tool that Satan uses to disrupt that unity. He wants to introduce distrust, deception into the life of the church. Now, of course, having said that, we must, we must recognize in this passage that, that when you take money and the human heart and you bring them together, there can be a potentially fatal mix to the unity of God's church. We must see that. But the application of this passage is not that God will strike you down dead if you don't give money to the church. That is not what this passage is saying. 
And secondly, and this is probably related to that first wrong application, this passage does not mean that Christians should live their lives in fear of their pastors. And again, it is a way that this passage is used. Where pastors will say, yeah, look look at Peter. Well, me too. (laughs) You don't come bow down at my feet, you will be struck down dead. And friends, it is done. This passage is used in in that way. And it is wrong. And can I just say that the very judgment they use in this passage is facing them. Don't stand too close. No pastor, even if he calls himself apostle so-and-so or prophet so-and-so, no pastor has this kind of authority that Peter has. Peter was one of the twelve. He's one of the, one of the twelve that Jesus personally appointed to be his eyewitnesses. It's Peter's job to give the world the message about Jesus, which is what you see him doing at Pentecost, Peter and the other twelve. When they spoke, when the apostles spoke, they spoke God's word. There's no pastor that will profit or anyone who does that today. A true pastor is someone who takes the words of the apostles and teaches those words to God's people. And even when they brought the money, when Barnabas and the others and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, it's not like they were bringing the money to Peter. They were bringing the money to the church to be used for the good of those in need. In fact, they were bringing the money to God. And so this passage doesn't mean, friends, that we should use fear to make people give money, and it doesn't mean that we should live in fear of pastors. That is a wrong application of this passage. So what does it mean? It means that God is very, very jealous for his church and he will protect it from Satan's attack. It means the unity that God himself has created in his church through the very death and resurrection of his son is both precious to him and incredibly important to him. It's important because his very purpose for his world is at stake. His mission to redeem the world is at stake. It is important because the honor of his wisdom and power as creator of this world is at stake. And so what does that mean for you and I today, friends? It says to us, this passage says, do not mess with the unity of God's church. That's what it says. Don't allow greed, prejudice, pride, lust, jealousy, bitterness, laziness, anger, deception, slander, gossip, selfishness, any of those other things that are lurking in our hearts, don't allow those things to be an opportunity for Satan to use us to bring disunity and disruption in the life of God's church. Beware. Especially don't allow hypocrisy to be the tool for division in God's church. Don't pretend to be something that you are not, a recipient of God's grace, transformed by God's grace, when actually something else is going on. God will not simply stand back and watch. He will protect his church. 
Any action that denies the reality of God's grace is an attack on the unity of the church, and God will defend his church. Now, does that mean that God will still strike people down the way he does in this story? If we do any of these things. And I don't think that is the correct application that we can draw from this passage either. And the main reason I say that is because, as I mentioned earlier, when this happens, it's a very unique event because it's right at the very beginning, the birth of the church in Jerusalem. The church is a little, little baby, very vulnerable, brand new. And the consequence of Satan succeeding then would have been devastating to God's mission. If he had succeeded, almost as devastating as if he had succeeded in stopping Jesus going to the cross. The church would have withered and died and disappeared. It would have ripped itself apart. And so it's not surprising that God deals with it in such a decisive way. And because God intervenes, the story continues and the church survives. And it grows bigger and bigger and bigger until today, as Jesus says at, as, you know, as Jesus says at the beginning of Acts, it's reaching the ends of the earth. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that Satan no longer attacks God's church. He does. He does it on a daily basis in a million different ways. He hasn't stopped. He hasn't given up. But, you see, because the church has now grown so much bigger and so much stronger, God no longer has to intervene the way he does here in Acts chapter 5. Instead, God has given his church another way to deal with this kind of thing, to deal with attacks on the unity of the church. It's what we commonly refer in in church, we refer to it as church discipline. So learning from Jesus, Paul describes a process that we are to use to deal with sin when it comes up in the life of God's people, in the church community. And it's a process, friends, that is full of grace. And the purpose of the process is not to destroy people, but it's ultimately to restore them to Christ, to plead with them to come back to Jesus. But it is also a process that is designed to protect God's church from sin. Because sin will always be a poison to the unity of God's family. And so this passage should should be a strong warning to churches and to their leaders. We must never ignore sin. We must never take sin lightly within God's people. We must use the means God has given us to deal with it. Because it can be deadly. And friends, even though I don't think Acts means that God will still go around striking people down dead when they do something like this. I just want you to remember a story from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Much later in the story of of God's church, well, not that much later, but 10, 20 years later, 30 years later, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and you don't have to look it up, you can read it at home, but he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, and the issue he's dealing with there is, is how they're doing the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is supposed to be, one of the things about the Lord's Supper is that it it is a reminder of the incredible unity that God has bought and created through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's supposed to remind us how God has united us in Christ. And what's happening in Corinth is it seems as if some of the more wealthy Christians 
are being very unloving towards the, 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 the less wealthy Christians, treating them in a very unwealthy, uh, unloving way, but at the same time, they're sharing in the meal the Lord's Supper. And so they, they, they are sharing in this unity that they have in Christ, but their very actions are a denial of that unity. And Paul writes to reprimand them, and, and he says to them at one point, That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now I'll just leave that with you. I wonder, friends, as that letter was read, if there were some slightly alarmed people sitting listening. Yes, God is full of grace. And he doesn't just go around striking people dead. You don't ever really hear of an Acts 5 chapter event ever again in the, in the New Testament. He doesn't do that. He is full of grace. But friends, do not take his grace for granted. Let us not think that God will simply stand by and watch. If we lay, allow ourselves, and, and whatever sin there may still be lurking in our hearts, and we all have it, but if we allow Satan to use that to, to begin to sow some sort of disunity and destruction within the life of his church, God is not just going to simply watch. He will deal with it. As Royden has been saying over the last few weeks, friends, what we have here, what every church has, this is a miracle. This is an act of God. And it costs nothing less than the death and resurrection of his own son. It takes nothing less than the work of the Spirit to apply that work to your heart and to mine and to create what is here this morning. And so the challenge of this passage is do not take this for granted. Don't do anything that threatens it, but rather do everything in your power to celebrate it, to rejoice in it, to nurture it, to protect it, to honor it. Let's pray together. Father, passages like this are not comfortable for us and that shouldn't surprise us. If the living God speaks to us, the living and holy God speaks to us, we should should often find what we believe about you, what we believe about the world is not quite what we expect. We should expect to be rattled by your word just a little bit and to see you as you truly are full of grace, a God who is determined to save his world, to redeem it, but a God who will not allow sin to stop him, a God who hates sin, a God who deals with sin, a God who sent his very own son to die because of sin. So please help us, Father, not to take this for granted, your grace to us, what you are creating here. Help us not to take it for granted, but to see it the way you see it. Help us to repent quickly, Father, when we know we, are, we have been or are even acting now or will maybe act in the future in ways that, that seek to undermine the unity of your people. Please forgive us and thank you that when we turn to Christ, there is always forgiveness. And change us. Now the truth of the gospel change our hearts so that we behave differently. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.